In one of his final speeches as Prime Minister, Boris Johnson has blamed short-termism for Britain's problems. There is a simpler explanation, though. We keep being governed by Tories. And the penultimate episode of Tisky Sour with Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing? Very well, Michael. Very happy you're back. Wasn't I back? Oh, I suppose I was back on Wednesday, but not to speak to you. I had a different co-host. I'm, I'm delighted to be back and delighted to be back with you this evening. Later in the show, I'll be speaking to the most controversial new member of Labour's NEC. And we've got news on Enough is Enough and Don't Pay UK. Boris Johnson is ending his premiership in the manner he started it, offending people by appearing to dole out useless and insensitive advice in a time of crisis. Yesterday, in a speech about energy, he said this. If you have an old kettle that takes ages to boil, it may cost you £20 to replace it. But if you get a new one, you'll save £10 a year for every year on your, £10 a year every year on your electricity bill. That was Boris Johnson in the middle of an unprecedented cost of living crisis, appearing to tell people how they could save £10 in three years' time. It seems a little like how he told us at the start of an airborne pandemic to just sing happy birthday when we wash our hands. However, though a silly and insensitive example to use at a time like this, it turns out that in the context of his speech, the kettle point wasn't actually advice for families this winter, but rather an awkward metaphor about the wisdom of nuclear power. When size well be, fantastic white dome, uh, was completed in 1995, it was the fifth reactor in seven years. Now remember 1995, an era that was technologically so primitive that people used to use things called car phones and went down to blockbusters to rent VHS videos. Think of the colossal technical progress in other areas and contrast the paralysis in British nuclear energy. How many new nuclear power stations, new nuclear power stations, have we built in the 27 years since? How many have been connected to the grid? How many slices of bread could we toast with the additional nuclear power we've created? How many washing machines could we power? How many families have been helped with extra nuclear energy? The answer is none. Zero. Zilch. It's a chronic case of politicians not being able to see beyond the political cycle. For 13 years, the previous Labour government did absolutely nothing to develop this country's nuclear industry. They said it didn't make economic sense. I think they even said that in their, in their manifesto. Well, thanks a bunch, Tony, and thanks a bunch, Gordon. Tell that to British businesses and industries that are now desperately short of uh, affordable and reliable electricity. Tell that to families that are struggling with the cost of heat and light this winter. And they're not, only the, they're not the only uh, culprits, because in the run-up to the 2010 election, as you, you, you'll have seen, famous video on YouTube now, Nick Clegg, the then leader of the Liberal Democrats, now some kind of tech lobbyist in California, I uh, said that the UK shouldn't build more nuclear power stations like Sizewell C. And he didn't say it was, it was unsafe. He didn't have what he called a theological objection. He said that the problem was that it wouldn't even be completed. Well, no point starting it, he said, because it wouldn't even be completed until, guess when? 2021 or 2022. So, gee, thanks, Nick. Thinkly point C, we're running now, it would be cutting our national fuel bills by three billion pounds. So you have to look ahead and you have to beware of the false economy. If you have an old kettle that takes ages to boil, it may cost you 20 pounds to replace it. 
But if you get a new one, you'll save £10 a year for every year on your, 10 pounds a year every year on your electricity bill. So that initial clip of Boris Johnson talking about kettles has been viewed millions and millions of times across social media, 11 million on Twitter, millions on all the other platforms. Aaron, I think this probably is one situation where Boris Johnson has been slightly taken out of context, even if it was a kind of silly and insensitive metaphor to use at this point in time. Or what did you think about the broader point he was making there, though? He's entirely right. Not about the specifics of kettles saving money, but there are clearly a bunch of fixed capital investments that can be made across the board in the UK, at the level of households, regions, nationally, which even in the medium term, not the long term, save us a great deal of money from the electrification of rail to retrofitting homes to make them warmer to building nuclear. The costs now of not doing a bunch of things are about to massively outweigh the costs of doing them. We're going to find that out this winter. And uh, it may not end this winter, by the way. You know, we may now see several winters just like this one. So hugely important point. He's entirely correct. He's also right that British politics is terminally short-termist. It's chronically short-termist. The only problem is, Michael, he's probably one of the worst imaginable messengers for such an important message. But that shouldn't detract from the, from the veracity of what he's saying and the importance of the next government in, in rectifying it. We have been chronically short-term. I mean, particularly under Blair and Brown, previous to the global financial crisis, they had a whole different growth model, growth coming out of real estate, financialization, that collapses in 2008. Then the baton's picked up by the Tories. They're even more guilty because, of course, there is the recognition after 2008, we need a new growth model, yet they don't do anything. And it's strange to blame the Liberal Democrats when we have had Tory prime ministers since 2010. They wanted to build you know, more nuclear power infrastructure, they could have. I want to continue being fair to Boris Johnson. In that speech, he was announcing £700 million in funding for a new nuclear power plant, size well C. And this was the response from the Green Party. So they tweeted, people need help right now, not in 10 years. Size well C is not the solution to the cost of living crisis. Now, this is a rare situation where a tweet from the Green Party actually makes Boris Johnson seem almost sensible. Um, this is exactly what Nick Clegg was saying 10 years ago, which is, oh, there's no point in building nuclear power plants. It's not going to help us for 10 years. Obviously, it isn't actually an answer to the cost of living crisis that we've got right now. What we do need is massive government help to help people through this winter and probably next. But it's not a good reason to not build nuclear that it's not going to come on stream for 10 years, because then in 10 years, you'll be like, oh, well, we wish we built it 10 years ago. Boris Johnson also came out favorably compared to someone else. It was Liz Truss. I t- tell everybody who, uh, who, who, who thinks hydrocarbons are the only answer, we should you know, get, get fracking and all that. Offshore wind is now the cheapest form of electricity in this country. Offshore wind is nine times cheaper than gas. I'll say it again. Offshore wind is now nine times cheaper than gas because of the insanity of what Putin has done. And that's why it makes sense for us to become more self-reliant. And of course, it's entirely clean and green. So renewables are not only helping us to defeat climate change, they're also helping to keep bills lower now than they would otherwise be in this crisis. So our next prime minister really wants to go full guns blazing with fracking. That was Boris Johnson. I mean, it seems to me he was attacking her from the left. I don't think Boris Johnson, as a conservative, Michael, given the messaging that comes out from the rest of his party, given the politics of the big papers that back the conservatives, you know, the Mail, the Sun and so on, I don't think he's been particularly bad on the climate. 
I mean, there were a bunch of commitments that we saw at COP in Glasgow last year. They're great commitments. I just don't think they're going to achieve them. But actually, in terms of what you're reaching for, they are hugely impressive. If you also look at the record of Tories and Lib Dems since 2010 on things, for instance, like solar and wind projects, a Labour government would have done far more, but actually they did implement a hell of a lot more projects than you've seen comparatively in something like Canada or Australia. You've got the building of HS2. Again, Australia hasn't got a single kilometre of high-speed rail in the whole country. So you do have to be fair. I know that's a very eccentric, old-fashioned way of doing things now when you do political comment or analysis, but you do have to be fair. Britain has been nowhere near as bad a laggard on these things as China, as the United States, as Canada. It's significantly better than some European countries. It's, it's worse than some others. And as I've said repeatedly, of course, the real leader when it comes to rapid decarbonization and building low-carbon infrastructure like high-speed rail is, of course, China. Again, a hugely unfashionable thing to say. You meant to say, Tory's bad, China bad, I don't know. Global leaders in uh, renewable technology, maybe the Germans, well, not so fast because they're taking their nuclear capacity offline, although that now appears to be suspended. So I think it can get a lot worse, actually, than what we've seen from the Tories over the last 10 years. Britain could have had a government more like Conservatives in somewhere like Australia, outright climate denial. That's not what we had with Boris Johnson. It's not what we had with Cameron, as bad as they were. And so I think there is a very real possibility of, of Liz Truss deviating from that. I don't think she will. I think we have to work on the assumption that right now, the rhetoric coming from Liz Truss prior to presumably being named as uh, leader of the Tory party and prime minister this Monday is about the Tory electorate. It may be applied thereafter, but I think it's a fool's errand to speculate on that. Right now, she's trying to appeal to the Tory members that matter in order to win this vote, a bit like with Keir Starmer and Labour. I don't think that's good, by the way. I think it's a very duplicitous way of carrying on, but it's, it's how politics seems to function right now. She probably will be more or less like Cameron and Johnson, I think. Although, again, with Johnson, and again, I know it's eccentric and, you know, uh, old-fashioned, is out of fashion, to be fair to somebody, but Johnson has always been partly because of this sort of childlike nature of his politics, he's always liked to be associated with big infrastructural projects because he's like, you know, Boris Johnson will be remembered as the world king in 50 years' time because when he was PM, we built X, Y, Z. And so I do think, again, it's quite rare for a conservative to say, I want big capital spend, big infrastructure projects like these because, you know, I view it as an extension of myself and I'm quite egotistical. Rishi Sunak, a very different kind of conservative. Liz Truss, we'll see. I mean, we don't really know her her thoughts. What we do know is a great piece about this in the in the Times recently. What we do know is she is a committed small state liberal. She doesn't believe that the state is 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 good for very much. People have been saying she was a member of the Liberal Democrats in uh, at Oxford University. She was also a member of the Hayek Society. She doesn't think the state is good for many things. I think on that case, particularly in its relationship to decarbonisation, Boris Johnson significantly better. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm probably a little bit more apocalyptic than you when it comes to what Liz Truss might be like on, on climate change. And I think the main reason is, I mean, I know you compared sort of Britain positively compared to Australia and Canada, but they're kind of really the real bad guys when it comes to climate. You know, they are the bottom of the pile when it comes to action on climate change, especially Australia. And I do actually think that Liz Truss might mean we end up competing with those to be at the bottom of the table in those sorts of ways. And especially the reason I am worried about that is because of what she's been saying about fracking and what she's been saying about gas and oil and 
getting out of the North Sea. But also who it seems, obviously we'll find this out next week, but it, it, it's touted that she's going to put Jacob Rees-Mogg in charge of the Department for Energy. And then we're getting into real Trumpian territory. We are talking about moving away from being a country where, yeah, we have this idiot as a prime minister. But one thing he did, you know, he wasn't a climate denier. And it seems that now we are putting people who are pretty adjacent to, to climate denialism in those roles responsible for it, which is the kind of thing you do see in Australia, the kind of thing you do see in the United States, which, which does seem like it could be about to arrive here. Um, I do want to move on, though, to talk about Boris Johnson's record. I mean, as we've said, the rhetoric yesterday wasn't a nightmare, um, actually better than what we have been used to hearing from Liz Truss. But the legacy is very different. So, of course, Johnson backed the austerity pursued by his party since 2010, and they did nothing to reverse it. That's meant results like this. Home insulations have fallen from between 1.5 and 2.5 million per year at the start of the 2010s to just 100,000 by the end of the decade. If you're looking for short-termism in politics, this is it. The same failure applies to healthcare. On that front, this is the legacy Johnson and his colleagues leave us with in 2010. There were just over 2 million people waiting for hospital treatment. There are now almost 6 million. And crucially, the largest part of that jump took place before the pandemic. And then this is the Tory legacy on wages. So average weekly wages went from £490 to £590 between 2000 and 2008. That was when Labour were in power. They then begun plummeting after the financial crisis and really, really, really plummeted once the Tories entered government. Shockingly, according to the Resolution Foundation, wages in their projections will be lower in 2026 than they were in 2006. Now, we've talked about a lost decade. We're now facing a lost 20 years. Before we move on from Boris Johnson, obviously, um, we are going to find out who's going to be prime minister on Monday. This is the last show before then. In a couple of sentences, Aaron, what's he going to be remembered for? What are the Tories going to be remembered for, Michael? What are the Tories going to be? What are they? What, we are going to remember from 2010 to 2022, or indeed until Liz Truss goes and was replaced by uh, hopefully a Labour government, of some kind, Labour-led government. They will be remembered as chronically inept. Britain obviously has been an economic decline comparative to the rest of the world for a very long time. It was a, you know 100 years ago it had an empire which covered a quarter of the planet, uh, but they really intensified that. And on a bunch of measures, if we have another 10 years like the last 10 years or another 14 years, like the last 14 years, we become an incredibly poor, comparatively speaking, country compared to Western Europe. We become a different kind of country. That's the legacy. The top story on the radio today was, again, Partygate. I do, you know, people care. They were right to care at the time, but he's gone now. We probably should move on. And I do think what the Tories are going to be remembered for for the past 12 years is just making Britain shitter. I mean, in every single aspect of life, health, the economy, education, foreign policy, everything has just got shitter than it was. Foreign policy is what New Labour were worst at. So maybe they've kept that a, a stable level of terribleness. But everything when it comes to domestic politics has just got much, much worse. It's potentially the case that for some of the richer people in society, it's got a little bit better. But to me, that just seems marginal. I think even for them, I, I, I think the policies they have pursued, yes, class war has probably been the explanation, but the outcome has just been that Britain sucks for everyone. 12 years of it, an absolute tragic waste. And two crises came along, COVID and now the cost of living crisis, and we couldn't be worse prepared. Next story. 
Results are in for elections to the members section of Labour's National Executive Committee. The NEC is the party's ruling body. It decides on things like rule changes, selections and disciplinary processes. And these were the winners. So it's a fairly complicated voting process, single transferable vote, which is why it shows you what round these people were elected on. So in first place, You've got Luke Akehurst, then Jess Barnard from Momentum. You can see in brackets here what faction they're from. Joanna Baxter, Labour to win. That's the Labour right. Gemma Bolton, Momentum and Black Open Labour. They're sort of self-described centre of the party grouping. Abdi Dwale from Labour to win. Yasmin Dar from Momentum. And then the big surprise here, the big standout is in eighth place, you've got Naomi Wimborn Adrissi from Jewish Voice for Labour. Closing it, you've also got Gurinder Singh Josan from Labour to win. Three candidates from Momentum who've got through, four candidates from Labour win, that's the Labour right who've got through, one from the centre from Open Labour, and then really surprising there, a candidate from Jewish Voice for Labour. That's surprising because Naomi wasn't on any of the main slates. She gained prominence as a member of the pro-Corbyn group Jewish Voice for Labour and for defending members suspended for alleged anti-Semitism. That resistance to Starmer's narrative on anti-Semitism would lead to Naomi being suspended in December 2020. That was after suggesting publicly that anti-Semitism in Labour had been weaponized. She was readmitted nine months later. Now, I'm sure it will come as no surprise to our viewers what followed Naomi's surprise election to the NEC. The Jewish Labour movement, that's the, the faction or a faction allied with the party's right, responded by saying this... An otherwise positive set of results in Labour's NEC ballot has been marred by the election of Naomi Wimborne Adrissi, a senior member of Jewish Voice for Labour who actively deny the scale and severity of Labour's anti-Semitism problem. That statement was approvingly shared by the Labour right MP Margaret Hodge, who said this, This is a disappointing result, especially for Jewish Labour members and the Jewish community. But Keir Starmer has worked tirelessly to rid our party of anti-Semitism, I have complete faith that he and the party will not let this set us back. This journey was always going to be hard. Former Labour MP Ruth Smith chimed in saying this, in an otherwise good set of results, I'm horrified by this one. UK Labour has come so far in tackling anti-Semitism since the EHRC report, thanks to the leadership of Keir Starmer. And for that, I'll be forever grateful. We need to make sure that we keep fighting the good fight. And the Jewish Board of Deputies, Jewish Leadership Council and Community Security Trust released this joint statement. The Labour Party under Keir Starmer has worked hard with input from all of us on challenging and rooting out anti-Semitism from within its own ranks. Today's National Executive Committee election results represent a backward step in tackling the toxic legacy of anti-Jewish racism from Jeremy Corbyn's leadership at the Labour Party. Despite the progress that has been made since then, this vote demonstrates the scale of the challenge still remaining for the party. In Naomi Wimborne Adrissi, an extreme wing among grassroots Labour members have elected someone who stood on a platform to reverse the positive steps the party leadership have taken and who has a history of repeatedly defending individuals expelled for anti-Semitism and other offences. The Labour Party must be clear that it will not allow this result to damage the progress achieved so far. Ms Wimborne Adrissi should play no part in the disciplinary functions of the NEC and be kept off any committees relating to equalities or the tackling of anti-Semitism. Now, to see what all the fuss is about, I spoke earlier to Naomi Wimborne Adrissi. I began by asking her how she feels about her election win and the backlash that it has provoked. 
I'm delighted to have been elected, obviously, myself and 13 organisations fought a, uh, a very comradely but um, consistent battle to try and get our names out there and to get the grassroots five elected. The fact that four of us did win, and commiserations to Mish Rahman, who's been an excellent NEC rep or CLP member, four of us were successful. It's a testament to the fact that the membership which survives, that is those who have not been suspended, expelled or left in despair, have a need for representation. They need to see that there are left-wing voices on the NEC that are going to stand up for radical politics that uh, is necessary if the Labour Party is going to be relevant to the mass of people in the country. And also they want to have representatives who will speak out for members' democracy, for the right to debate and discuss freely. Honestly, I think most of us feel that uh, if the party is to have any legitimacy as a potential government, party of government, it's got to be seen to be one which respects its own members and which is capable of managing differences. If you can't manage differences within your own party, how can you possibly be accessible to the huge range of opinion around the country? And in terms of the backlash, it was obviously to be expected, given the history I was quite surprised at the speed and ferocity of it. It was obviously very well coordinated and thought out in advance. I've been very gratified to see the pushback on Twitter in particular from people saying, do you really think it is a good look for a party seeking to be elected to government to be pillorying the one Jewish person, a Jewish woman, elected in this current election? for being the member of the wrong Jewish organization. And what will this mean to most people that I'm a member of JVL rather than JLM? What on earth does that convey to the electorate? And so our audience understands. I mean, as you say, the response has been very strong and it's been very widespread amongst a certain part of the Labour right, but also the the Jewish community. You've got the Board of Deputies, you've got the Jewish Leadership Council, you've got the Community Security Trust, and as you say there, you've got the Jewish Labour movement. I mean... What have you done to provoke this much opposition? What, what, what's your understanding of why these groups are so upset? You obviously know a lot of the history, and I'm sure many of your viewers do as well. And JBL, Jewish Voice for Labour, was set up in 2017 by people who had a lot of familiarity in many cases, most cases, with working for justice for Palestinians. There's been a group called Jews for Justice for Palestinians in Britain since 2004. And for a long time, that group has had a, a role in defending the right to propagandize, I'd rather not use that word, to advocate for justice for Palestinians without being accused automatically of anti-Semitism. And that has become more and more common as the actions of the State of Israel have provoked more and more outrage, not only in Britain, but around the world. So a group that is Jewish, which is articulate, which is well-informed, which is very well-grounded in the labor movement, for that group to be advocating for politics which are in direct contradiction to those of the right of the party, particularly their friends within the Zionist movement, but not only, for those people to be people like us, to be throwing our weight behind a potential prime minister, Jeremy Corbyn, a leader of the Labour Party, who is obviously seen as a threat 
to the to the establishment in this country. I mean, never mind people who are friendly towards Israel. That's simply one element in the constellation of those who've been opposed to to Jeremy Corbyn and to those who've supported him and to people like me. So, I mean, I'm very wary. I, I'm constantly warning people not to see this as a plot orchestrated from Tel Aviv. That's obviously not the case. This is, in fact, much bigger than that. It's about um, it's about the way the Western establishment sees sees politics and sees what is admissible. Uh, Keir Starmer obviously has a view of what is permissible in politics, and it's very Blairite. It's very conciliatory. It's not particularly challenging to the powers that be. It doesn't challenge power relations in the country. And you know, we and the people with whom we've worked very successfully. We do make that challenge, and I think that what, that's what makes us a threat. You've been suspended once before by the Labour Party, obviously once Keir Starmer became leader. Are you concerned that that could happen again? I presume that's the one thing the leadership could do to stop you ending up sitting on the NEC. I'm aware that there are people who would dearly love that to happen. I mean, I won't take over my role as an NEC member until after conference, which is towards the end of September. In October, there will be another meeting of the NEC and the new members should be taking their seats on that occasion. I think there are people who would much rather I never got that far. But I think it's very important that I do. And I hope that if there was a move to suspend me or to exclude me between now and then, or indeed later, that the movement would rally against such an action because it would clearly be a move to try and block out a whole current of Labour Party opinion. And left-wing Jews in particular, I mean, you'll have seen the mention in the Ford report of regret. He expresses himself very moderately, as is appropriate. The exclusion of Jewish boys for Labour specifically, but Jews other than those in the uh, in the approved mainstream organisations, and obviously the factionalisation of the whole discussion about anti-Semitism is is also highlighted in the board report, and that's something that I would be wanting to pursue, um, assuming I do manage to take my place on the NEC. And I know other people on the left are very anxious for that to happen as well, particularly Black and Muslim members. I'll be going later this afternoon to uh, to a protest in Westminster organised by. Diane Abbott and others who are appalled that the leadership has offered no acknowledgement at all to the, the revelations in Ford based on the revelations in the earlier leaked government's legal unit report about racism, entrenched racism inside the Labour Party. So, yeah, I think I'm, I'm at risk, but I hope that the coalition which built around Grassroots 5 successfully, very successfully, will continue and that we'll be able to resist any such interventions. It would be an intervention by the leadership, however they spin it. And so if you do make it to the NEC, um, I certainly hope you do. I mean, our audience will have seen in this member section, so there's nine member representatives to the NEC. The left have done okay. They've got four out of the nine seats. But on the NEC at large, which I think is close to 40 members. You've got councillors, MPs, lots of people chosen by, by Keir Starmer. The left's a tiny minority. So if you do get there, what can be achieved other than, I suppose, expressing your, your opposition or resistance to certain moves being made in the party? You're right. 
the left will be a sort of tiny pinprick um, on, on the NEC. We're, we're not going to be able to determine policy or to to make changes uh, to rules of the party or anything like that. But we are going to be able to question at every stage, particularly things like how a Ford report is to be implemented. We'll be able to participate in policy discussions. We as NEC members will be able to put forward motions, which will then become sort of part of the proceedings of the, the National Executive Committee and, and will be able to be reported or reflect the views of members. Um, fortunately, when CLPs pass resolutions, which they hope will go to the NEC, that really doesn't get further than somebody's been probably uh, in the in the NEC administration, which is very unfortunate. But we as NEC members will try and represent members' views on the whole range of policy issues, on disciplinary matters, on whatever's current and necessary. For heaven's sake, we've got... <laughs> Monday and Tuesday, you'll be busy, won't you, with the Tory leadership announcement. We've got this horrendous government, which is not going to get any better in terms of uh, attacking workers' rights and mishandling the cost of living crisis desperately. Planet's burning. Hey, you know, there's a lot for people who are on the left to do in the governing body of the main opposition party in this country. That was Naomi Wimborne Adrissi, whose election in eighth place to the NEC has caused such a furore. Personally, I think the guy who came first should be a bigger deal. That was Luke Akehurst. Akehurst's day job is as director of the campaign group We Believe in Israel. Its most recent campaigns include a petition supporting Israeli airstrikes in Gaza and a petition against the author Sally Rooney for refusing to sell her book to an Israeli publisher. Akehurst is also personally cosy with the Israeli army, tweeting this in 2018. So, spent this morning with the IDF being shown Hamas attack tunnels in the Gaza border at IDF spokesperson at We Believe in Israel. The walkabout with the IDF appears to have done its job. Later that year, in response to Palestinian protesters getting maimed and killed by the Israeli army, Akers tweeted this, I do not accept that the IDF shot anyone who didn't pose a direct threat. Why on earth would they? With views like that, it's no surprise a search for tweets from Luke about Shireen Abu Akhtar, the prestigious journalist shot dead by the IDF, shows up no results. And it's not just Israel's war on Palestine that gets Akehurst's approval. This is his take on the Vietnam War. So he says, it was North Vietnam who did the invading. USA was on the defending side. Obviously, I would have supported the principle of resisting a communist invasion of South Vietnam. Now, we're in Labour Friends of Napalm territory here. Another war Luke backs is the criminal bombing of Yemen by Saudi Arabia. So he tweeted this in 2017. I can justify arms for Saudi Arabia. I absolutely do not want Iran to win in Yemen or anywhere else. He added that this was because the potential to destroy the aerospace manufacturing that drives the economy of northwest of England matters too. And to protect those jobs or to kill the people Aker sees as the bad guys, he also appears willing to go nuclear. In 2015, he said this, so at Tina Teapot 27, Trident could be used anything from one warhead in an uninhabited area as a warning shot to 40 aimed at cities. Aaron, it's a funny world, isn't it, where Luke Akehurst is welcome in Britain's centre-left party, but Naomi Wimborne Adrissi, her being on the NEC, that's something which which causes a massive hoo-ha statements from all sorts of groups. 
It's genuinely astonishing, Michael. I mean, this is a man, he came first. His job, not his hobby, not his, you know, his uh, side hustle, his job is as a lobbyist for a foreign power. Doesn't matter what country it is. It could be Israel, it could be France, it could be the United States, doesn't matter. His job is to be a lobbyist and to advance the interests of a foreign power. I find it deeply strange and disconcerting that somebody doing that for a job not only is a member of a national political party's executive committee, but came first with the most votes. I find that genuinely astonishing. And I find it strange. And I think if it wasn't coming in the aftermath of Jeremy Corbyn and, of course, the left taking control of the Labour Party, you know, a pylon and a, effectively a cancellation by much of the national media, including, you know, liberal media who think they're really good guys. I think if that hadn't happened in the last five years, well, from 2015 to 2019, I think that'd be called out by far, far more people than it presently is. It's astonishing. It shouldn't happen. Of course it shouldn't happen. The idea that a lobbyist for a foreign power becomes so senior and influential within a domestic political party is incredible. Saying that is not racist or anti-Semitic or bigoted. It doesn't matter what country it is. It can be an ally. It can be an, you know, an enemy state. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You're meant to be representing people within a domestic political party, advancing the public interest of people in this country. You should not be a lobbyist for another country. I would think that's relatively self-evident. Again, maybe I'm old-fashioned. That's not what stands out to me about this. I mean, if someone was Labour Friends of Palestine and that was the group they were wanting, I'd be perfectly happy for them to be sitting on the NEC. I mean, for me, it's the nature of the country he is lobbying for and, and what that lobbying forces him to do. Well, not Palestine isn't a country. He's very Michael. willing to do it. Palestine isn't a sovereign country. I don't think that's true. It's a really easy example to just say Palestine because it's an occupied country. Give me another example where that would be acceptable for you. Ukraine. If, he was, if it was Labour Friends of France and he was the head of, you know, Labour NEC France and he was involved potentially in, there's a Labour government and they have defence contracts with French companies. No, there's clearly a conflict of interest, Michael. That's Labour his friends job. Labour Labour Friends of Bolivia. I think you're being silly. No, I think you're being silly. I think given, given the proximity of the United Kingdom and Israel in terms of our defence relations, I think it's genuinely, it's at least something that I personally find it very strange, actually quite shocking, but I would at least expect a, a conversation around it. I do find it strange. If there was a lobbyist for the United States and they came first, doesn't mean the United States is an allied nation of the United Kingdom, but I would find it strange. It's a conflict of interest. The Labour Party exists to advance the public interest of people in this country. Can't be a lobbyist for another country because sometimes those interests are going to conflict. So yes, you can give some strange examples like Palestine, Ukraine, maybe a couple of others in the Global South in particular. But Israel is a, is a prominent, militarily, economically powerful country. If you can give me another example where you think that would be permissible, I'd be very interested. I don't think it exists. Well, I mean, I, 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 we shouldn't spend too long on this. I suppose my position is why I find it offensive that he came first and that he sits on the NEC isn't so much because he is a lobbyist for another government, it's because of precisely what he does in that role, which is to justify airstrikes in what is essentially an open-air prison and to dismiss anyone who's been shot by the IDF as someone who, I mean, there's, there's little way to read that other than if you get shot by the IDF, it means you must have, by definition, been a threat. And obviously, mm. this is a year when they've shot an incredibly prominent journalist I think there are countries you could be an advocate for, or you could be a lobbyist for, where you don't have to defend stuff like that. But no, no. Let me let me just clarify. He's advancing their perceived national interest. That's his, again, that's his job. And in, in the in the case of Israel, it means a bunch of things you've just listed. For other countries, it might be slightly better, and other countries it might be slightly worse. It's his job. It's his job to advance the national or the perceived national self interest of a different country. I find that strange. If you're in politics in the UK, it's because you want to serve people in the UK. I find that conflict of interest. I don't think I'm unusual, by the way, Michael. I think that'd be, if you explain that to the average person, they'd find it a bit, bit odd. 
A new poll suggests that a whopping 3 million people are planning to stop paying their energy bills in response to skyrocketing prices. The Times have reported on the research. They say this. The study of the likely extent of non-payment found 6% of people intend to cancel monthly payments in October. When extrapolated nationally, this equates to 3.16 million people, about 1.7 million homes. More than half of those who plan to stop their payments say they have been inspired by the Don't Pay campaign, which is urging a million people to pledge to cancel their direct debits if the government takes no further action to prevent bill increases. Later in the article, they go on to say this. The research which questioned 2,000 adults highlights the scale of the challenge households face. It found that more than half of those questions still did not know how they would afford to pay the new tariff, and almost one in ten already knew that they would not be able to cover the cost. In an attempt to make ends meet, almost three in ten planned to cut back on how much they spent on essentials such as groceries, and one in ten would take on extra work. One in 20 intended to borrow more to help to stay afloat. Nearly one in five fear that they would not be able to keep their present home if bills kept rising. Um, Aaron, I'm never too sure how to take seriously sort of polls like this. You're asking people about a speculative action. Will you stop paying your bills in October? Also, you know, you're extrapolating from 6% of respondents to say that this is going to translate into 3 million people. That's actually, I'm sure the margin of error there is pretty big. But in any case... I mean, it is clear that the don't pay campaign has had massive impact. And also, you know, it's very unpredictable what is going to happen this October. A lot of outcomes all are in now the realms of plausibility. I think that's right. And one of the reasons why I don't understand people sort of hating on don't pay or criticizing them, you know, don't do that. Andy, Andy Burnham said, don't do that. I don't think cutting, by the way, a direct debit is a criminal act. I think he seemed to infer that it was illegal, what they were proposing. Maybe I misunderstood him. But it's happening anyway. You know, there is polling that suggests that I think as much as 25% of the public either can't or won't pay their bills if we see the cap rise as far as, as is predicted now for the beginning of next year, where we see for some people it will be literally unpayable. We looked at the modeling on that last week. So I, I think to say, well, don't pay, you know, they've got it wrong. I think that's mistaken because it's less a case of don't pay, but can't pay. And so what I think this movement does is it politicizes the millions of people who will not pay their bills if things are as bad as we believe they will become over the next six months. And I think giving them agency and identifying that as a political act and the result, by the way, of economic exploitation, I think is very useful. I think in the absence of that broader umbrella, many people out there would be thinking, I'm a loser. I can't pay this. It's my fault. I failed. No, this is a political issue. You share that grievance with millions of others of people. And by the way, let's empower you and say, you know what? You're not alone. And actually, you're part of this broader movement. And millions of people will be within it. Of course, they will. I think actually, it'd be far more than the numbers there. If things get as bad as, as predicted, like I say, I think we've seen multiple polls now. I think it's two or three maybe polls suggesting that as much as 25% of people won't be able to pay their bills. And, and by the way, we, we know that the energy companies are literally preparing for this because I think it was the Mail on Sunday, which basically did this great story about the energy companies buying tens, hundreds of thousands of these units for, for prepay energy because they know very likely many people won't be able to pay their bills. They will literally get into those houses, turn off the energy, completely reconfigure their system so they have a pay-as-you-go system. That's what they intend to do if things are as bad as they think they might be. So this is happening. And I think it's brilliant that it's been politicized so overtly by the Don't Pay campaign. 
The Enough is Enough campaign is fighting the rising cost of living and is continuing to gather pace. And that's something Northwest Durham MP Richard Holden learned firsthand this week. I think they're trying to make a political statement. I'm trying. The starving people is a political statement. No, I, I, I agree. And I'd like to hear you say that you are committed to urging your government to encourage. I want to go more than that. I've already told you I want to go more than that. I think what the danger at the moment... But you've also talked about £400 here and £300 there. And I know the perspective, Premier Liz Trust has talked about um, 5% reduction in VAT, which is is as much use as a chocolate tea. This campaign is about thousands and thousands of people in this country who've had enough, they've had enough, and they need a decent share. And that's all I'm asking, and I'm sorry that you don't approve of it. And I think it's very, very remiss of you to just try and screw it up. No, I didn't. But thank you for your time. I know it's very valuable. I think it's. Thank you. I I I can understand why you're making a political statement. Do you? Why, sir? I do understand. Why, sir? I do understand. Why, sir? Because what you've decided is that the current plan put by the new opposition is enough for people. I disagree. I don't think... No, I haven't. No, I haven't. Because that's exactly what you suggested. No, I've asked that you do the same as France. I'm not talking about the opposition. I'm talking about France, Spain, other countries who've imposed... They've put a freeze on it now so that people don't get into thousands of... I've got a sister who's 80% hearing loss. She can't get out for flat. She's not mobile. She can't afford... She can't even go down to the library or sit in a cafe to keep no. warm. And she's worried stupid about it. I'm not, because I'm fit enough to go to Durham jail and I'll sit in there rather than freezing my own heart. I mean, what was so telling about that clip was the extent to which the classic Tory response when you complain to them about the damage their policies do. It just doesn't work anymore. I don't think anyone watching that will be convinced by that line from the Tory MP. I can see you've got a political line to, to put forward. Because what that woman was saying are things that you know, basically 95% of the public agree with. There is an overwhelming majority of people in this country who think that energy bills should be capped. I mean, obviously they are capped, but capped to the level which is actually genuinely affordable. And to sort of say, oh, this is just a political ideological dispute you have with me and the Tory party. No one is buying that. And so while obviously you can't extrapolate from one person speaking to a Tory MP and it being filmed, you know, that could happen about all, any number of issues. I think what's so telling about that video is, is how none of the responses that guy had worked. And that's the real problem the Conservatives have at this point. And it's also actually, you know, to be fair to them, that's a real success of the Enough is Enough campaign, which is that people have these arguments which they can put forward to an MP, they can put forward to, what, to anyone who thinks that we should face £5,000 energy bills. And it doesn't get read as just, oh, this is just the standard lefty ideological blah, 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 blah. Everyone listening to that, or 95% of people listening to that are like, she is exactly right. And that guy is out of touch. And that's, I think, why, you know, Tory MPs should be terrified right now. Aaron, what do you make of that clip? What do you make of that response? Well, I feel like the Tories are in probably bigger trouble than we, we sort of understand. I was looking at this amazing poll, Michael. There was one poll from Ipsos, I think in April, May. Two thirds of the public don't think that the Tories will solve or address the cost of living crisis. You can only presume it's gone up since then because, of course, things are now worse. Two-thirds of the public. This is really astonishing, Michael. This was in The Independent more recently. Half of Conservative Party members don't think they'll address the cost of living crisis. Half of Conservative members, not voters, not the general public, these 200,000 people who are completely unreflective of the, of the country's attitudes and mores and, and beliefs and priorities, 
50% of them don't think that the Tories will address the cost of living crisis. So it's, it's interesting seeing now Tory politicians, outriders, influencers, commentators having to sort of huff and puff like this. They're running on empty. They're running on fumes. And not even they believe what they're saying. And I, I think they know they're very close to being found out because not even their own membership think that they're going to actually address these problems. I think they're praying to God there's not another winter like this one. We have an awful winter this year. God knows how many excess deaths as a result of the cold. Of course, we have those every year, but it's going to be very bad this year. We'll see interest rates go up only so much, hopefully not more than 5%. We'll see inflation rise, hopefully not more than 15%. You know, it won't hit the 22% presently predicted by Goldman Sachs and things will settle back down next year and we'll go back to normal. That's what they're praying for. But it might not be as simple as that. So it's a really, really interesting moment in, in British politics, particularly English politics. Thank you for joining me, Aaron. And thank you to all of you for tuning in tonight. This show will be back on Monday. That's going to be a massive show. New Prime Minister will have been announced. Have a good weekend, all of you. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.